Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. All right, if you have a Bible, let's go. Romans chapter 7 is where we are. We left off last week on verse 6, and we're going to pick back up starting in verse 7. If you're visiting with us today, I'm really glad you're here, and I want to encourage you to open your Bible. Uh, The people from Crosspoint know this is what we want to do here, but we want to have a copy of our copy of God's Word open on our laps, staring at this Word. We're going to work through a few verses, verses 7 through 13 of Romans chapter 7, and if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you. You're welcome to keep that Bible as our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. And I think it's good for us just to remind ourselves why we do this. I think this actually forms our, our philosophy of ministry here at Crosspoint when we gather together. If you notice, we, we begin our service with the Word of God. We, we have several scripture readings that are intentionally chosen to, to work us through and to, to point us to Christ and His work and the theme of whatever the scripture text that we're dealing with that morning. And then We want to sing the Word of God, and we want to pray the Word of God, and we want to preach the Word of God, and then when we end our services, we we have a a benediction, a a reading of God's Word as we send ourselves out, and we want to be people that are centered on the Word of God. We're not trying to perform any religious service here this morning. We're not not trying to do anything other than we, we want to be people that open up God's Word and we just work through it. And we see Christ in all the scriptures. Now, I am under no illusion. I I hope you kind of remember what I say to some degree, but I forget what I say. And so three months from now or five years from now, I don't want you to remember an alliterated sermon. I want the time that we are marinating in Romans to make, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says preaching should be. It should make an imprint on the soul. And when When we gather together, something beautiful is happening. God's people are opening themselves up to God's word that by the spirit of God that wrote the word of God is changing, even in an imperceptible way often to us. He's changing his people and he's making them more like himself. And for those that may be unbelievers that are gathered, and every Sunday there are people here that don't yet know Jesus, some of them that think they do but they don't, and others are aware of the fact that they don't know the Lord and they're consciously coming in wanting to investigate Christianity, we believe that the Spirit of God is at work in the Word of God to do His sovereign will. But to do that, we we must expose ourselves to this Word. Listen, listen to this. I don't have it on the screen. I just want to just reorient, remind us what we're doing here. This Scottish pastor back in the 1900s, he wrote a book called The Work of the Pastor. It is so good. I, I read it a couple times every few years. This is what he says about the ministry of the word. He says, there is no greater or better way to make an impact than by sounding forth the word of God and bringing people under its life-changing and character-transforming power. The reverberations, that's three years from now, Ten years from now when you're flipping through your Bible and you see Romans 7 and you remember the imprint that God put on your heart during this time. The reverberations of such a ministry extend further and further and the ramifications of his influence spread farther abroad than we ever dreamt of. of. And all without thought 
on our part or attempt at publicity, self-aggrandizement, or self-justification, or goofy little tricks that we do on stage. Do get my point, which is this, that if the hope of the world is Christ, it is Christ in all of the scriptures. And the hope can only be, and that hope can only be fulfilled by men pouring out the riches of Christ's saving grace upon the Lord's people through the scriptures. That's what, that's what we're doing here today. So let's, let me pray, and then I'm going to read Romans 7, verses 7 through 13, and we're going we're to work our way through it, okay? Let me pray. Pray with me, uh, believers, that God would, would meet us in his word. Father, thank you for your word that we have read, that we've prayed, that we've sung, and now I am going to attempt to preach through. Lord, we don't come to examine your word so much as we are pleading that it would examine us. Show us beautiful things in your word. Make your people as you have promised and as we have already sung, make them more like Jesus so that we are ready for that day. And for my friends that are in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, Lord, would you, would you by your grace give them what you require of them, which is faith. Lord, I'm not praying that they would look down deep inside themselves and find something that would be pleasing to you because that's impossible. But I, I'm pleading that you would give them what you require of them, which is faith that is the gift that comes along with new life. In other words, Lord, resuscitate dead hearts this morning, I pray, so that they can see Jesus. And I pray that you would help us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to, I think, just work through these few verses, but I'm going to put the outline of my thoughts up on the screen. And I'm, I'm indebted to, to Martin Lloyd-Jones, my favorite, one of my favorite dead preachers, and John Stott, another one of my favorite dead preachers, for their work on this text. I read them uh, this week, and I don't think I can improve upon their outline. And so I'm just going to give it to you right up front to give you a flow of their outline I'm going to use to help me work through this text to explain it to you. So I want us to look at the relationship between the law and sin. And we're going to we're going to orient ourselves as to where we are in the text in just a moment, but I want you to see that there's this relationship in these verses that we're going to read today that Paul is saying between law and sin. So in one sense, the law reveals sin, it provokes sin, and it condemns sin. And before we dive into it, uh, and before I read Romans 7, 7 through 13, here's the point of where we are in the text. If you've been away for a few weeks or maybe you're here for the first time. Paul's point in Romans is to really justify why God would let anybody into his presence into heaven. That's the point, really. It's a radically God-centered book. It's actually Paul defending God for saving anybody because God's holy and all of humanity has fallen. And Paul is saying that God can do this because God has not graded on a curve. He's not hedged on his standard, but he has offered his son Jesus, fully God, fully man, to bear the weight of the punishment that the holy law of God required against sin and human rebellion, which all of us have participated in, save Jesus. 
And so Jesus has been put forward as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. The all-important biblical word is propitiation. And Jesus has lived the perfect life in accordance with God's holy law. And then he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice to bear the wrath that God's holy law, which exhibited his character, demanded. And because Jesus is not just a perfect human, but because he's also the infinitely holy son of God, he has enough righteousness to absorb all of the wrath of God and then to give us, to impute to us, to credit to his people, to those that he gives faith to, righteousness, which is, which is now ours in Christ Jesus and allows us to stand before a holy God. And that's the point of Romans up to this point. And Paul then, in chapter 6 and 7, is is anticipating an objection objection that, well, if we're not saved by what we do, our works, or our obedience to God's standard or his law, and we're saved by grace, and Paul, you just said at the end of Romans chapter 5 that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, then we might as well just sin and do whatever we want because there's just going to be more grace to cover it. And Paul, in Romans 6 and 7, is fighting against that faulty view. It's a view called cheap grace, or maybe more technically, antinomianism, which is, a, is a, a theological word that means against God's commands. In other words, I'm a Christian now. I believe that grace has saved me. I can just do whatever I want to do. And Paul says, no, we've been freed from the tyranny of sin, that's Romans 6, to live in ever-increasing Not perfect on this side of eternity, but ever-increasing obedience to God. That's sanctification. Fight against sin, Romans 6. And now in Romans chapter 7, he takes up this this thought, this, this objection about what then is our relationship as a New Testament believer with the Old Testament law. And we saw in the first six verses that Paul has said that we have now died to the law, not because of anything we have done, but but to have faith in Jesus means that now we're in him, we're united with him, we're, we're in union with Christ who died according to the penalty of the law innocently, and rose again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and defeated the sin that was against us and fulfilled the holy righteous requirement of the law for us. So now, because believers are united with Jesus, we're in union with him, that's what it means to be a believer, we have died to the law in Christ, and we've risen again. Now Paul is taking up in the second half of this chapter, What then is our relationship with the law? And because his audience is primarily Jewish, many of them anyway, not all of them, he's wanting to show them now that the law that has been so good that that he's been speaking negatively about is not the problem. The problem is not the good, holy, righteous law of God. It's sin. And I drop my glasses again and I got to pick them up because I, I need them. So, Paul's point in this this passage is to defend the law and to say that it's not the law that's the problem. It's not God's holy, righteous character as exhibited in the law. It's actually sin. So, with that (laughs) lengthy introduction, let me read the text. Verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. It can't be more emphatic than that. By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. But sin, verse 8, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That's a complex statement there. We'll, we'll work through it in a second. Let me read it again. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13 then, summarizing his argument, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and that through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. All right. So let's work through this text here. I want us to see in our outline that the law reveals sin, the law provokes sin, and the law condemns sin. And then we're going to end with a, a couple reflections. First, look at verse 7 again, where it tells us that the law, this Old Testament code, system, moral character, God, holiness, revealing system of the Old Testament law, shines the light on sin. So look at verse 7 again. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? And he's answering really the objection that he's anticipating that they would have because in verse 5, if you look at what we looked at last week in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, it says, it says that, that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. So it seems like the law is in cahoots with this sinful passion inside of us to produce in us this, this wickedness. And so Paul is, see what he's doing? He's anticipating the objection that people might have that the law is bad because it, it in a sense, it aroused, it, it provoked sin. So is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now this is really interesting. Because of all the things that Paul could have just used as an example in the Old Testament law, he actually uses the 10th commandment. So you know when we're talking about the Old Testament law, we're talking about not just the 10 commandments, although that's very primary and sort of the base of the law, where God gives Moses the 10 commandments on Mount Sinai. And the 10th commandment is you shall not covet. And we're going to talk about in a second why Paul would use that as a quote here. But then God also gave Moses... Many, many prescriptions and more specific regulations about a whole host of things, about dietary laws, about the sacrificial system, about just civil laws, about how the people should treat one another. And when, 
in Romans, particularly Romans chapter 7, Paul is using the word law. He's not just speaking about the Tenth Commandment, or the, the Ten Commandments, but he's speaking about this whole system of, of God's holiness, of how the nation of Israel should live and how they should be governed. And all of it becomes a kind of standard that God gave his people, not by means of making life difficult on them, but to cause them to be distinct from the nations so that God could call all nations, all peoples, to faith in himself through the sanctification of his people as they live in accord with God's holiness. So you see what he's doing in the Old Testament through the nation of Israel is a kind of seed form of his desire for the church in the New Testament. That the way we live as a peculiar people, God would use it as a kind of witness to an onlooking world, that the gospel that we preach and believe would be lived out, again, not perfectly, but in consistency so that the world sees an embodiment of the gospel that we preach. But here, Paul says, he just sort of summarizes all of this Old Testament law by saying that the law came in to reveal, to make sin known. And he says, I wouldn't have known what it is, for example, to covet if the law, specifically the 10th commandment here he chooses as an example, didn't say you shall not covet. Now this is interesting because the first nine commandments all have more to do with external actions in a lot of ways, whether it's not creating a, a graven image or it's not lying or stealing or cheating or, 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 or committing adultery or murder. All of these things, certainly all of them have a heart component to it, but they're all external actions that a person could say, well, I didn't do those things. But this one that Paul chooses here to, to use an example, he's saying, don't, don't covet. And really that gets, it's one, that's the only of the 10th commandment that goes straight to the heart and is more to do with an internal posture of the heart rather than any external action that you cannot, can or cannot do. And Paul is saying that what happens here is the law serves as a kind of, a kind of spotlight that doesn't produce sin because sin was in the world before the law came, clearly. You see in the Garden of Eden, which we're going to read about in a second, we see Adam sinning against a direct verbal command of God. The, the written law had not been given. And then from Adam to Moses, which is hundreds and hundreds of years, sin existed, right? Just read Genesis, man. We went through Genesis a couple years ago and worked through all 50 chapters. And there are chapters in there. In fact, I, I just read through some chapters in Genesis again in my, uh, my, my daily devotions and my Bible reading plan. And I was reading about some of the wickedness that went on in the family that God chose to be his people. It reads... I mean, it makes Jerry Springer look like Dora the Explorer. That's what it does. <laughs> Which is a kind of encouragement because this jacked up family is the one that God actually chooses to be the seed of the nation of Israel, which becomes his people. So God chooses whacked out families to work with for his glory. Now, I mean, read, read, read the New Testament, how he, he writes a letter to a church in Corinth, and they are so messed up that Paul basically spends 15 chapters slapping them verbally in the face for their carnality. But they're God's people. That was off script, but I, I, just, I just love it. God works with messed up people. 
And, and here we see that Paul is saying that the law comes in to show me. It's not that sin wasn't there, but it comes to kind of paint it. It's like an invisible element, elephant in a room, and it's like the law splashes hot pink paint on it so that we can all see, aha, there it is. And if there's anything in me that thinks that I'm obeying the law, the law actually gets down into the very crevices of my heart and says, no, you are guilty too. The law reveals sin. It gets to the heart. It's not just about external conformity. The law was always intended to show the human heart that it is against God since the garden. But not only does the law reveal sin, it also provokes it. It kind of it brings it out. Look at verse 8. It says, but sin, seizing an opportunity. Now, now that's a really interesting phrase, and we just read it in English, seizing an opportunity, but but. but the, the, the sense of the word there in the original language is it's like sin seized a kind of beachhead. It seized a base of operations through which to work its evil. And so what's going on here is, it's, is Paul is saying that sin is so wicked that it's actually hijacking God's holy law. It's seizing an opportunity through the commandment it's establishing a beachhead. It's attacking God's law. It's attaching itself to it. And it's actually using, this is the logic of Paul here, it's actually using God's holy good character and law and precepts and commandments as a base of operations to work its disastrous end. That's what verse 8 is saying. But since seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So it's not that you know, the, the law actually made us sin or produced sin in us, and it's not that it wasn't already in there, but it's that through the light shining deep into the crevices of our heart, the law uses that and it produces in us all kinds of of covetousness, all kinds of sin. It's not that there was no sin before the law came, but think of it this way. It's kind of like a, like a, a powerful engine in a car that is going downhill and it's coasting, right? It doesn't really need it. You don't know how powerful that engine is because there's nothing opposing it. And that's really where humanity is before the law. I mean, God occasionally would speak to his servants like Abraham and others, but before the law came, there was really nothing sort of in a universal global sense amongst God's people opposing it. But when the law came, it's not that sin wasn't there, but that it was this powerful engine of sin and wickedness is kind of coasting unopposed. But when the law came, it put a slope, a steep slope as a standard of God's holiness against this law. And what sin does here, picture it, it revs up his engine and now it comes alive in a way that it wasn't before the law came. Do you see that? It's not that the engine of sin wasn't running and producing sin in fallen humanity, but when the law of God came, it bared down its teeth, it throttled against God's law, and it produces all manner of more sin. Not that that sin wasn't already present, but it just becomes more apparent now because God's law is against it in a more pronounced, scripted way. That's what's going on. Augustine, the early church father in the 300s and 400s, wrote a book called Confessions later in his life, and it's a really 
It's a really helpful autobiography about just his own uh, battle with sin and his salvation and his sanctification. But it's also a, real, a really interesting picture of just all humanity and our struggle with sin and the law and God's commands and even after we become Christians. And, and he writes about this scene when he was a young boy, and it kind of illustrates this point about how sin comes alive in us. And, and he, he titled it uh, this time with a, I love this phrase, a gang of naughty adolescents. <laughs> and so this, it's, it's Augustine hanging out with some punk teenagers, basically, is what it is. And this is what he says. We, I just listened to this quote. I don't have it on the screen. But he says about this time when they stole some pears from a neighbor's tree. He says, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. In other words, I had a bunch of pears that were even better than these pears that I was stealing. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and doing of what was wrong. Was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no other reason than it was not allowed? Do you see what Augustine is getting to here? He's saying that's at the bottom of the human heart and that's what sin is revealing in this clear, or that's what the law is revealing in this clear way. It's revealing that our problem is that our hearts in their sinful nature after the garden are wicked and against God. Listen to what, what the Bible says in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, and I, I don't want to just sort of summarize it, I want us to, to actually see it, because this is the human condition before we are saved. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 2, listen to what it says in Genesis 2, verse, verse 15 through 17, then we'll read out a little of Genesis 3. It says, the Lord God took the man, meaning Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Uh, I, could, I could go on a little rant here about how young men need to get up early and have a job because that's what God created you to do. And you should be a guy that kind of tends your own garden and you shouldn't waste your life on video games and you should learn what it is to, you know, tuck in your shirt and show up on time and prepare your life so that a young girl will actually find you as somebody that could possibly be worth hitching her train to, somebody that can have a job and keep a job and just kind of brush his teeth, but I, I won't go on that rant right now. <laughs> and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So he's saying, he's saying look at all these trees, man, everything in this garden, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours. But this one, don't eat of it. Don't eat of this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. When you eat it, you shall die. And now look at what sin does. Look at the serpent here in Genesis 3, how it uses the law of God. This is a kind of picture, an illustration of what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, how, how it, it produces. So in Genesis 3, look at, look at the deception now of the first couple. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's trying to twist God's word. That's not what God said. That was not God's verbal law to them. And the woman said to the serpent, she gets it right here. No, 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 no. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. So she got that right. He's like, oh, shoot, got to come up with plan B. She says, no, no, he said we could eat all of these trees, but we just can't eat this one. That's what the sin is trying to do. It's trying to, it's trying to rouse up this latent thing and draw it out and produce death and disobedience in Eve and Adam. But the serpent said to the woman, okay, plan B, you will not surely die. God's lying to you. For God knows that when you eat of, your, eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I, I could talk about Adam's passivity there and talk about how passive men are often, but, but I won't. I, I want us to see here that you see this picture illustrated in the garden, which is what Paul is, I think, commentating on in Romans chapter 7 about how sin, the enemy, comes and it, it stirs up and it lies to us and it says to us, God is holding out on you. When actually God's command isn't sinful, it's actually God's goodness to us, protecting us from things that he knows will destroy us. And the law comes in a way, it's used by sin in a way to provoke more sin in us. And so sin is hijacking God's law and thinking that it's triumphing over us. But we'll see here in just a moment that actually it's, 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 it's doing God's bidding unwittingly in his sovereign plan of redemption. So that gets us to the point number three, that the law condemns sin. Let me read verses 9 through 12 again. Paul says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now that's really, there's a lot going on in that verse. Think, just think about it. Paul is saying, and, and, and commentators think that Paul isn't just speaking autobiographically here about his own life, but he's also thinking about, he, in a way, Paul is sort of in solidarity with Adam in the garden, and he's also in solidarity with Israel in the Old Testament. And Paul is sort of speaking a kind of across these three horizons here, and he's saying, he's saying sort of corporately with all of humanity that I once was alive apart from the law. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we were doing just fine, but it means that in a sense to be alive there is we're, we're ignorant really of, yeah, we might have a sense of right and wrong. All humanity has a sense of right and wrong, but before God opens up our eyes to our sinfulness, we sort of think that we're doing okay. And that's what Paul, I think, is referring to here in the first part of verse 9. I once was alive. I was humming along, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, when God opened up my eyes, and I didn't just have a general sense of right and wrong, but when the commandment came and really knocked the scales from my eyes, sin came alive and I died. Friends, I think what's going on in Romans chapter 7 actually is that Paul is explaining the pre-converted man's progression as he comes to a knowledge of the truth. 
And Romans 7 is a kind of, Romans 7 verse 9 is a kind of picture of that. I thought I was doing okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of maybe had this God awareness. And isn't this the, the, the way uh, much of our world does life? I think I'm kind of okay. I know I shouldn't do bad. But it's just kind of a moral karma sort of thing that governs the universe. And yeah, I, kind of, I grew up in a Christian culture, so I kind of believe it. But they're not really truly understanding that they are dead in their sins. And what Paul is saying here in verse 9 is that when God sovereignly moves upon a person's soul, the commandment comes and it actually then stirs up all of this sin in them and they realize for the first time how wicked they actually are and it kills them. Friends, contrast this with the self-esteem culture that we're addicted to, right? Where we just want to tell everybody how awesome they are. And Paul is actually saying that in this approach to salvation, this progression to understanding who we are, the law first comes in and it kills us because it opens our eyes to the fact that we are dead in our sin that actually opens our eyes to to the reality that we are much worse than we thought we were. C.S. Lewis, the the great British thinker and author back in the mid-1900s, says that before you preach the cure, you have to preach the disease to the Western man. Because in the West, we think we're so awesome. And for us, the gospel is just an add-on to a new helpful way to live life. Friends, the message of the gospel must first kill us before it can make us alive. And that's what I think is going on here in verse 9. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity, there's that phrase again, through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy. Paul's quick now to to, to just remind us, in case we think that the law is sort of in this, you know, plan with sin and is, 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 is culpable. He's saying, no, 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 but lest you get the wrong impression, verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Look at verse 10 there again. It says something really interesting. It says that the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So in one sense, I think what Paul is saying, and I think this is borne out in the rest of Scripture, that, that if a person were able to obey the law perfectly, that it would bring them into life. In fact, we see that in the Bible. In Leviticus chapter, Leviticus chapter 18 um, and verse 5, I think we have it up on the screen there. Look what it says. It says, you, and he after gives much of his law, he says through Moses, you, speaking to the nation of Israel, shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. But the problem is, none of us can live that way. If we could, it would produce life. But the empirical evidence of all of humanity is against us, right? Every time we run this experiment of self-righteousness, it fails. And here's where sin, who thinks that it's hijacked God's plan, actually gets tricked by God because this was all part of God's plan in the first place. So sin thinks that it has tricked God, that it has 
cut in on God's law and produce death and one, but behind it all, we see a sovereign God who has planned for redemption and planned and allowed for sin to come in and to produce death as part of his sovereign plan so that it would cause people to not think that they can do it on their own, but that they would look away from themselves and look to Christ who alone can do it for them. Listen to what Galatians 3, chapter Chapter 3, verse 21 says, I think it says this exact same thing. Galatians 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So, So read that together what we just read out of Leviticus. If you live this way, if you obey this, you will live. Yes, in a sense that's true, but nobody can do that. Nobody can do that. Nobody can make themselves right with God by their own, their own righteousness. So Galatians 3 then colors in the lines for us so we understand God's redemptive purposes in the law is not that people would be made right with the law by the law, but that the law using sin against itself who thinks that it won a temporary victory that the law would actually produce the death, the futility in us, so that the law would actually drive us to Christ. That's what verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Look at verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So, so you see what's happening here? That sin in our enemy, the devil, thinks that it's won a victory by causing mankind to fall. But what we see behind that all is that the law was actually using wickedness and sin to actually produce what its intended purpose was in the first place, which was not to save, but to bring people to the end of themselves. I've told you this story before about how my my brother and I used to box when we were kids, Um, and I mean, just like in our living room, and he was older and much more powerful and stronger than I am, still is to this day, actually. And we had this rule where he would, I couldn't hit him in the face, but I could hit him anywhere. Like I, have, I got these gloves, and I would hit him in the you know, kidney shot, and everywhere I'd just kind of go as much as I could. And he would let me think that I was actually getting the best of him. But when he wanted, when he'd had enough, he would actually take off the blanket that he was kind of shielding himself with, and he would throw me down on the ground, jump on top of me, straddle me, get my hands, which had boxing gloves, thankfully, and then just cause me, he would just overpower me and make me hit myself in the face. <laughs> I know, yeah. Somebody was like, oh, yeah, poor Brad. Yeah, poor Brad, poor Brad. <laughs> and, and that's what's happening here. Sin thinks that it's hijacking the holiness of God and using it against us. But what's actually happening is that the law is condemning sin. Paul summarizes then this in verse 13. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? In other words, was it the law that brought death? 
By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. And listen to this. The second half of verse 13. In order that, so behind this all is this sovereign purpose of God who has orchestrated all things in this way. Sin was producing death in me through what is good, hijacking in its failed attempt to hijack God's law so that in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So God is going to condemn, cancel, identify, display sin for what it really is by using it against itself. So that gives us then time to think about two reflections on what Paul is saying in this complex text. First, I think this, that we, let's just pause here and and realize that we cannot deal with sin on our own. It's powerful. The horsepower of sin's engine is far greater than anything we have in and of ourselves. We cannot deal with sin on our own. We can't negotiate with it. We can't. I went to watch um, that Churchill movie, The Darkest Hour, uh, that recently came out, which I was, I went to those new uh, recliner seats at, at AMC 13 that used to be Hollywood Connection. There's no better way to watch a movie. It was just me and this really elderly couple. We were the only people in the movie. Going, to, you know, I used to think it was kind of awkward to go to a movie by yourself, but there's something about middle age that just sort of frees you up. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> and it's not that I don't want to go to movies with my wife, but she doesn't like those kind of war movies like that. And so anyway, I'm just reclined in this chair and I and one of the high points of the movie when, when Churchill was talking about standing against and not negotiating with the wicked Third Reich and Hitler, he says this famous line that I think we've probably all heard maybe at some point where, where you can't negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And that, that, that's what sin is like. You know, we miss this text if we, if we sort of see ourselves as pretty good church folk. And if right now we're thinking about somebody that we know is really jacked up. and No, Paul is saying, and this is Paul who's saying in Philippians 3 that I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In, in a sense, in regards to my ability to conform to the outward requirements of the law, I was, he says in Philippians 3, blameless. But here he says that the law actually came in and it opened my eyes to the complete desperate predicament that I was in and it killed me and it's more powerful than I am and 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 you see what God's holiness is doing it's using sin as its own pawn to wean us from our own self-dependence 
It's not like God made most people weak, but there's a few of you out there who have a really strong constitution and you can handle it on your own. No, friends, if that's your thought, if that's the way you view yourself, you, you are still in the first part of verse 9. You still think you're alive, but you're not. And the law needs to come in and show you just how desperately needy every human heart is and how perilous and how dangerous and how wicked and how sinful beyond measure sin is and we tend to gauge sin by how it compares to the other horizontal sins around us but friends that's not how the bible gauges sin it gauges our personal sin not with how it stacks up to the people around us but how it compares to the holiness of God that's why the moral legalist is just as guilty in a sense of eternity as any wretched external sinner is before a holy God because we're not comparing ourselves horizontally we're comparing ourselves to a holy God and sin cannot be dealt with on our own terms and we are like we all don't we all struggle with it come on come on this this should just infuse us with humility and compassion for one another shouldn't it oh man we're we're, we're needy people and here's the good news we're not just reading this letter as paul is writing it we're reading it in retrospect. We don't have to stop there because we know the answer to the problem. We don't even need to go outside of the chapter. Let's just skip ahead to verse 25 of Romans chapter 7. And it says this, verse 24 and 25, Oh, wretched man that I am. That's where we need to be when we come to Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm in this predicament. There's nothing I can do about it. And maybe this is you today. Maybe you have this ability because maybe you grew up in a decent family and you've got some kind of grit to you and you can sort of, you, you, you can sort of obey God's external law. But when the law really comes in and it shows you how actually wicked your heart is, you should be where verse 24 is. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What can be done? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do You see, we, we don't have to wait to get to the gospel. It's right there for us. And we know that Christ has dealt with our sin for us. He came and he lived a perfect life on the cross he died a sacrificial death. What he did on the cross is not just a sign of like his love for us, although it certainly is that, but Jesus is bearing the holy wrath of God, the requirements of the law of God, and he's absorbing it, he's satisfying it, he's extinguishing it, he's canceling it, he's removing it as far as the east is from the west, and then because he's holy and didn't have to die in and of himself, but just did sacrificially and voluntarily, God raises him from the dead, displaying his victory and his vindication, and now he's alive and he gives his righteousness to his people. So now we are no longer wretched sinners. We still may, may be dealing with sin, but we are now united with him in a resurrection like his. That's, the, that's who you are, 
Christian. That's who you are, young man, if you're fighting lust right now. You're still dealing with it. Don't deal with it on your own. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus did. He died. He rose again. You are his. And now he's put his spirit and his word in you. He's put you in his family. And he's given you the ability to walk in the newness of the spirit. From that man, you can dig in and you can fight. You can fight sin. You don't have to deal with it on your own, praise God. And secondly, I end with this. My second reflection, and this is, this is, we have to be careful here because we're getting into, uh, we're just getting into mysterious waters when we think about the plan of God in all things. But I, I, think, I think it's helpful for us to go here. And it's this, that God has good purposes for his people in all things. Even in the allowing of sin to enter a universe and to cause it to fall. Even in my own personal life and all of the little things that I've done that have caused me to displease God. God has in some way mysterious good purposes for all his people in all things. Let's, let's skip ahead to Romans 8. We, can't, we just can't help but get get into Romans 8 a little bit. Look at verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and I read sufferings, is really ultimately caused by human rebellion. That's not to say that everything that we suffer in our lives is directly related to our personal sin. It's also not to say that, you know, if a if a natural disaster happens and it's because this country's sinning, I think that's wicked theology that people, that people that's a wrong, God certainly can do that, but, but that, that's, that's not what's going on here. But I do think that all sin, all suffering that we see comes as a result of, a consequence of the fall in the garden that we read about that we all participate in. And so in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings, everything that's broken in this world, this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So even the suffering that I'm enduring as a result of my own personal sin in this present time, it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. In other words, we're not all, redemption is not complete in a sense, we're saved and we are his right now, but there's actually coming a day when Jesus will come back and not only will, be we with, we, will we be with him, but he will finally and fully vanquish all evil and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and creation is looking forward to that final day. I mean, come on, that'll make you dance. Verse 20. For the creation, look at this now. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. In other words, creation, and we're part of it, were acted upon by some greater force. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. <laughs> so who's doing the subjecting? 
We have this great power who is subjecting humanity to this futility. And I read that, I think we can say, I think we're on good scriptural grounds here to say that creation, mankind is the image bearers of God and steward of all creation, enters into a state of futility. That's the fall. And I think this verse is saying that there's actually a greater power who's orchestrating all of this that's allowing the fall so that he can save out of that fall for the display of his great glory. Now, who's doing that subjecting? It's certainly not the devil. It's certainly not sin. Because if the ultimate motivation of doing the subjecting is actually saving to bring forth the glory of God, that's not the devil's business to arrange things for the glory of God. So the only person who's actually doing this, the only one that could be doing this, is God. So friend, take heart. Do you see, do you see the connection I'm trying to make here? Do you see, in a strange way, and we, we can't use this as a license for sin. We can't just say, oh, well, God is sovereign, so he made me do that. If, if that's your heart, you missed Romans 6, which says that he's freed you from this captivity to sin so that you can walk in the newness of life. But underneath all of that is this sovereign God who is working all things, even our failure, even the fall, even my personal sin, for my eventual good. And maybe what he's doing is he's causing the law to come into my heart and causing in me such a distaste for my sin and how it grieves him that he would use that to bring me to this final state where I am free, finally free. And friends, that's a, that's a, the Bible's stunningly God-centered, isn't it? That's not a cute little verse that you can, you know, just kind of say, oh, well, this is, this is, help me, you know, live a more optimal life. Friends, this Bible comes in and it slays us. And God allows the fall and it slays us. And what I'm saying is that in some mysterious way that we have to approach with fear and trembling, God is sovereign over it all, and he has promised, as we sang earlier today, to hold us fast. So we have a law that convicts us, sin that kills us, and God who makes us alive and says, cling to Christ and fight, and I will bring you safely home. That, that's, that's Romans 7. Verses 7 through 13. I'm worked up. I'm out of time. I'm going to pray. Lord, let us see this. Let us see this. We need to be people who read your law and we're, we're humbled by it. We're examined by it. We, we're in awe of its awesomeness and awfulness in, in the old sense of that word that it's full of awe. Lord, rescue us from being haphazard, casual, flighty American Christians. Save us from the, the superficiality of our age. Save us from the triviality. Wean us from, wean us from this veneer of feel-good faith 
and anchor us to this truth that you are sovereign over all things. And then it has been part of your plan to humble man because the, the glory is not ours to be had, it's yours. And so, Lord, guard us from being glory thieves. That's what legalism is. That's what self-righteousness is. It's, it's glory thievery. Wean us from ourselves and remind us that we have no hope to fight sin, even our remaining sin. Even those of us that have been born again, we have no hope apart from Christ. But also strengthen us by reminding us that the battle has been won and you will bring your people safely home. And there's coming a day, even though we groan now along with creation, when we will be finally free. Lord, that is better by far. Lord, do this, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.